0: Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. Over the centuries, depicting the divine has been a significant concern of artists around the world and across religious traditions. But beyond their inspirational and devotional power, what other functions do these works of art serve? Today we're talking to Susanna Gulachi, Professor of Asian Religious Art at Northern Arizona University. She's the author of three monographs and dozens of articles on the use of art for religious teaching across Asia, focusing particularly on its use in Manichaeanism. This year, as a fellow at the Center, she's broadening her efforts to consider how other religious traditions across Central Asia employed art to attract and instruct converts. Welcome, Susanna. Thank you for having me. So this is a Herculean project. It's encyclopedic. It's massive. Uh, It crosses time periods, regions, many, many different religions. Is this a standard approach for research?
1: No, it is not standard at all. My focus actually is larger than Central Asia. It involves Asia as a continent, which is a pretty much neglected aspect when it comes to globalism itself. Uh, Usually the ancient world, the focus in late ancient studies or or in antiquity tends to be the Mediterranean region. And uh, later on, of course, it shifts to Europe. But Asia as a continent is a very valid aspect of research. Trade routes crossed the region via the land itself. And in addition, there was also a significant amount of uh, sea routes that surrounding the continent um, allowed for traffic from one region to another. But most prominently, what my focus is, and that's where Central Asia comes in, is the land routes that cross Central Asia while they connect the western part of Asia, what is today Iraq and Syria and Turkey and the Arabian Peninsula, on the south with India and along the eastern regions with China. So, the trade routes crossing the middle of the continent, what's known as the Silk Route, is at the focus of my research.
0: What are the particular subjects, lenses that you're looking at and through?
1: I'm an art historian with training in um, comparative study of religion and, most importantly, in area studies. And that allows me to shift my focus from traditional questions that art historians worked with onto. Questions that regard the practicality of how the art functions in a religious context in historical time. So I'm approaching my subject with the focus on the materiality of religion. How artifacts are used for various purposes within religious context.
0: Tell us more about looking at art as a practical tool. Um, How is it practical? What were its uses?
1: I found that um, a certain group of objects in religious context have a very specific practical function that um, take away our attention from devotion. The traditional focus of art historical research, works of art that are produced for liturgical or devotional ritual purposes are traditionally have been associated with religious art. My research has shown that there is a significant quantity of art that is used for educational purposes. And that's where this didactic and practical angle comes into my research that connects religions, that crosses religious boundaries and fulfills similar functions, although, of course, nuanced within uh, the respective religions.
0: And were these also tools to promote religious conversion?
1: Certain cases, missionizing was very significant. For example, uh, missionary religions uh, traveled with the merchants along the trade routes across the Asian continent. And that is how Buddhism was transmitted from India via Central Asia into China and then the rest of the East Asian countries all the way to Japan. But other religions... Syriac Christianity, Eastern Christianity is another term for it, also known as Nestorian Christianity, was transmitted early on via the trade routes from Syro-Mesopotamia all the way to China. Syriac Christianity is present in China by the 6th century. And the same is true for Monachism, a religion that originated during the 3rd century in southern Mesopotamia, from where it was transmitted via the trade routes. Towards the west to the Roman Empire, and also towards the east, across the Persian Empire, reaching the realm of the Turks in Central Asia, and then further east, reaching all the way to China.
0: What did those who practiced Manichaeanism believe?
1: Manichaeism is uh, indeed a very unique religion. It is known as a religion that uh, combines elements of Christianity and Zoroastrianism, and depending on which religious studies, color, you encounter, the quantity of these two elements is going to differ in the interpretation. One will view Monichaism as a mostly Christian tradition with some Zoroastrian elements, and others would, would argue for the opposite. Uh, and indeed, uh, a uniquely Mesopotamian religion, during the third century in Mesopotamia, Christianity is present. And Mani, the founder of monicaism, grows up in a Baptist community, so he's well-versed in basic Christian teachings. And at the same time, he lives in the Persian Empire, where Zoroastrianism is the dominant religious force at the time. So he's familiar with teachings of Zoroastrianism. At the same time, southern Mesopotamia is an important center of the empire. Sesiphon is one of the capital cities. It's a major trading center, and it is also a metropolitan center. A highly educated group of religious scholars live in the city. Mani himself speaks a variety of languages that are known in the region. He most certainly used Syriac. Aramaic, most certainly he knew Greek, which was an important um, ethnic group in the region. He was highly literate. He could read and write. He was a
0: painter also, wasn't
1: he? He also wrote his letters. Uh And it is also known that Mani, according to later legends, he's interpreted to be a painter. But what I'm finding is that what he actually did, he commissioned a set of paintings. So he probably walked into a workshop Mm -hmm. and ordered a picture book, a book of pictures, a scroll that was filled with images, and since that's such an unusual phenomenon, later interpreters of Mani, historical sources, later historical sources, attributed authorship to him as if, as if he himself would have been a painter. But you are right, that is indeed um, what Mani is famous for, that he him, himself was a painter, especially in Persian literature.
0: It's a common, I think, perception, or perhaps it's a misperception, you could educate us on this, that... Some of the religions that you're working with are non-representational or have prohibitions against the pictorial. Judaism, I think of. Islam, I also think of. Mm-hmm. So how does that, those prohibitions relate to the propagation of didactic art?
1: That's a very important question, especially because during the middle of the 20th century, the notion that there is an uniconic tradition that's present in certain religions, became very firmly established in art history and also in religious studies. As we are finding out, it's rarely the case. An important archaeological discovery during the 1920s upset the understanding of this uniconic nature of Jewish art, for example. Excavations discovered a fully-painted synagogue That is a meeting hall inside a synagogue, the walls of which were covered from floor to ceiling in three registers uh, with narrative biblical scenes, about 60 or so arranged in in a neat order surrounding, literally surrounding the community. And that was a very unexpected discovery since previously no painted structures from a Jewish context, have been known. And it raised the question that I myself am bumping into, that images that are created not for devotional, but for educational purposes, figure into how a religion defines its uh, rules and its aesthetic values. So just like the Monicaeans, the way I I see in 3rd century Mesopotamia, the Jewish community that's documented from Dura-Europos also engaged in the use of images Mm -hmm. for uh, instructional purposes. The same is true for early Islam, especially in uh, in Persia and Central Asia. We know that images about the life of the Prophet Muhammad were depicted and uh, were incorporated into history books. So imagine a set of historical texts that would contain scenes about the life of the Prophet. These are not books that are used um, in devotional context. These are educational books. They are history books. And uh, I believe that's a very important distinction to emphasize.
0: So you're talking about interactions amongst Jews, Christians, Muslims, Manichaeans, Buddhists, a whole array of different religions, and you're taking this comparatist approach. How in that approach Do you account for vastly distinct visions and nuances embedded in these religions without oversimplifying?
1: It's very important not to oversimplify the doctrinal differences between these religions. They uh, have their own distinct set of teachings that materialize in what they represent. But how the art is used is a point of connection among them, and that is what I'm focusing on. Uh, my task is um, dual in a sense that uh, I investigate the material aspect of the art and how um, that art functioned within the context of the religion itself, with its buildings or in its itinerant priesthood. Um, that function is one aspect of my research. What the art showed is a separate question that requires An understanding of the religious doctrine that is represented there. So without blurring these differences, without oversimplifying, I try to make sure that that my studies uh, maintain the integrity of the teaching that the art represents. And indeed, the art that is used for teaching is very frequently extremely detailed and sophisticated in its content. For example, The Buddhists could have mandalas that have about 900 figures in them. The Monacans could have a diagram of the universe with over a thousand figure in them. And indeed, these are large and very complex paintings with clear doctrinal analogies. So imagine, in a sense, while religious texts contain written versions of the teaching, at the same time, the art contains visual renditions of the teachings that is expressed in an aesthetically pleasing manner. These two set of sources are complementary. What I find through an emphasis on the materiality of the religion, that religious texts have traditionally been considered primary to the discussion of what a religion is and where its teachings are to be found. But the materiality of of religion emphasizes the importance that there is an other aspect to religious knowledge. There is an other aspect of religious identity. And um, questions about it can be answered through the material culture of the specific religion. The art itself is a way to understand how a religion functions and what its teachings
0: are. Tell us a little bit about Your process for research, your sources, where do you go to find them, what do you do? Tell our audience how you function as a researcher.
1: I spend a lot of time reading texts and reading uh, uh, studies about doctrine and matching those with um, visual examples, matching those with uh, artistic remains, has been the traditional exercise in art history. So I I do that. I I deal with doctrinal questions and representations of the divine and representation of of, um, certain elements of uh, of doctrine in the art. But then I take it to a different um, level, to take that knowledge and apply it to understand the practicalities of how the art is used, how the art functions. And my goal is to find signs in the art itself that allow us to trace bits and pieces of evidence of this practical application. I also search in textual sources that document how the art used. And sometimes there is descriptions of how a teaching is conducted or how a disciple addressed the question. We have uh, certain textual sources that allow us to find um, traces in the historical record. Those textual records about the function of art, plus the actual physical remains of the art with signs hidden in them about the practicalities of how it functioned, taken those together allow me to make sense out of this lost practice of uh, teaching with images when it comes to different religions.
0: Thank you, Susanna. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.